from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland and UQPSY Studios. This is Just a Thought, a podcast where we explore psychology and how it influences our lives. Here are your hosts, James Kirby and Nicole Nelson. So welcome to Just a Thought, and uh, on today's podcast, we have the wonderful Dr. Will Harrison with us. He is a recipient of the NHMRC CJ Martin Early Career Fellowship, uh, quite a competitive fellowship uh, to obtain, and he's based at the Queensland Brain Institute here at the University of Queensland. Uh, Will has had quite the adventure post-PhD completion in 2013, a week after he submitted his PhD. He was on a plane and had a postdoctoral position at uh, Boston University working under uh, one of the experts in his field, Peter Becks, and I'm sure he'll talk to us a little bit more about that. Uh, Following that, he then moved to the UK to work at the University of Cambridge, so uh, Will keeps fine company, it seems, and uh, it's an absolute uh, joy to have him here. He's a leader in the field of visual perception, and we're very grateful that he's joined us here on uh, Just a Thought. So welcome, Will. Thank you very much, James. Great to be here. Did I miss anything there? No, uh, well, you, you started with, um, oh, that's very complimentary. You said something about how I got this competitive fellowship, the NHMIC CJ Martin Fellowship. And, and I was told that it was competitive, but, you know, I, so I, that, that took me to the University of Cambridge. And actually, there were, I think, at least three other Australians at, in the same department as I was in in the Department of Psychology who had the exact same fellowship. There might be a bit of a selection bias going on there, but it certainly kind of, you know, made me feel a little bit more humble about it. Uh, it, is am- I was. it is amazing where you'll find Australians in other parts yeah, of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, it is really quite impressive, impressive, Will. But I mean, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself that we, we, we didn't really touch on there that sure. you think that people would like to know? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I studied... Um, an undergraduate degree in, in psychology many years ago uh, here in the, the University of Queensland. And initially I was uh, studying psychology because I wanted to be a clinician. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. Oh. Um, and it was only in my honours year I, mm. I uh, got a project in P- Professor Penelope Sanderson's lab. And um, Penny is a, she's, I guess, applied cognitive psychologist. She works a lot in uh, hospitals trying to understand, you know, what scenarios doctors perform well, what scenarios, you know, nurses remember things or forget things. And I just had such a fun time that I kind of just fell in love with the research. And I sort of thought I might, you know, um, follow that kind of um, career progression instead. And and since that point, I kind of have never looked looked back. <laughs> Um, so that's that's how I got into research, and then of course after I finished my honours year, I started a PhD with Professor Jason Mattingly and Professor Roger Remington, who are just absolute legends of cognitive psychology. So I was completely spoiled in terms of my supervisory team, um, and then uh, you know had had a relatively stressful PhD. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been a little bit um, better, uh, but ultimately I had a great time, and yeah, and the rest is the history that you you mentioned already. Um, so yes, I mean that that's amazing. Amazing uh, to to uh, have initial uh, perhaps desires to go down the clinical path, but then uh, you know being introduced to to uh, Penny Sanderson's work, um, 
got you interested in this whole idea of cognition? Was it visual perception stuff she was doing at all, or was it? So the project that we were doing, we actually, so we actually published this this paper, which you know I kind of wear proudly because I thought the 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 honors thesis mark that I got was not you know in line with the sort of effort <laughs> that I put in. So I very yeah. proudly published that paper, and um, you know. You know, through the through the uh, publication in my in my thesis reviewers uh, interface. No, not really. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so that that was about we're we're, we're using head mounted displays ah. to try to understand when people can detect certain audio visual events, mm. and uh, so it did involve a certain visual aspect, but it wasn't really heavily about visual perception and throughout that year I sort of more and more got involved in basically the low level visual perception and less of the applied stuff and that's essentially the path that I took uh, during my PhD. Oh excellent so I mean the research you do specifically Mm. um, when I read uh, some of your work and I also attended your seminar that you gave uh, only a week or so ago Mm. um, you know a lot of it went over my uh, simple mind Uh, if you were to describe the research you do to a broader audience how would you describe the the visual perception research yeah I mean so I I, I think that that you know what you got out of my presentation could be a, you know a problem with the level that I pitched it rather than you know any problem with you James. But, um, I, so ultimately, I think most of what all psychologists are doing, we're just trying to understand how the mind works, right? So we're trying to just study the mind and behaviour, mm-hmm. and we all sort of carve up this big bit of pie, and we try to study our own little piece of that pie. And the little piece of pie that I'm trying to study is how we perceive the world, right? So we know that this happens in the brain. I don't know any neuroscientists who don't think that, um, you know, visual perception happens in the brain. Um, But really the computations that occur to convert the outside world into what we call visual experience, they're completely mysterious. And so there are a couple of little sub-problems that I'm trying to understand um, to hopefully get this problem. How does the brain produce uh, visual experience. Goodness, um, that, that that I could understand. Okay. <laughs> Lots of that. So, <laughs> that. I don't know what that says. Um, hopefully, um, uh, other people did as well there. But no, certainly the presentation you gave um, uh, last week uh, gave a really nice picture of how. Uh, how important this is to understand, particularly for giving insights into people who experience real difficulty right. with visual perception. Is, is that one of the aims of your research? Yeah, that's right. So so the, the fellowship that I'm on at the moment is actually what's called a biomedical research fellowship. So the motivation of my basic research is a certain, certain kind of visual disorder called age-related macular degeneration. AMD for short. Okay. Now, the macula is the part of your retina, the, the part of the back of your eye that you use to see uh, the visual world in high resolution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so anytime you're reading words on a page or you're recognizing faces, you're almost certainly using your macula. Um, and unfortunately, there's a very common disease, age related macular degeneration, that occurs in people over the age of 60. It's extremely common. I can't remember the exact numbers for, for Australians, but it's something like one in eight, one in oh. six people over the age of 60 will suffer from AMD. And what that means is that they lose this part of their their eye that is responsible for seeing things in high resolution. So people who have age-related macular degeneration, they struggle to read words on the page, they struggle to recognize faces, Um, you can't watch TV, you know, there there are all these really sort of debilitating problems just from a very small Mm. uh, blindness. Uh, When I say small blindness, I mean it's 
blindness in only one part of the visual field. And the part of the visual field is, is um, your central visual field. And we call this foveal vision. So the part of your eye, the macula, we also call it the fovea. And that's what we, when we move our eyes around, we're essentially pointing our fovea at things in the world that we want to see in high resolution. Um, and the reason that we do that is because the rest of our visual field, everything that's outside of the fovea or outside of the macula, um, we perceive in very low resolution. And that's because of a number of different reasons. For example, we know that because of the optics of the eye and the, the distribution of photoreceptors, the little cells on the back of the eye that absorb light from the outside of the world, they become less and less dense in peripheral vision, in the peripheral retina. So that means that things in peripheral vision look blurry, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we know that there are these optical limitations of the eye that stop us from being able to see things in peripheral vision, but there's also neural bottlenecks. So even though information might be registered by the eye in peripheral vision, our brain still is throwing out a whole bunch of information specifically from peripheral vision. So we use our fovea to overcome these neural bottlenecks. So we point our fovea at things and we can see things in high resolution. But if you're missing your fovea, as is the case in AMD, you only have that low-resolution peripheral vision mm. that's limited both by the eye and by the brain mm. to see things in the world. And, and my basic research is aimed at understanding, well, what is the brain doing that makes peripheral vision so low-resolution? Yeah, so um, when you uh, presented this in the seminar, you had a great, um, and I think this speaks to what you were, you were mentioning, correct me if I'm wrong, this great demonstration of it by having like a, a large uh, panoramic photo mm. and then you had just a, a circular section spotlighted and that would be the, the, the fovea, yep, is it? Exactly. Is connecting in on it. And then you, you could notice very easily how everyone else was blurred quite yep. out of, of, of our picture. Um, and then when you started to point out what else was in the picture, it was really quite yeah. a, a fun exercise to do. You had many of those nice little examples in your presentation. And where did those come from? Are those just things you've come up with yourself to demonstrate the complexity of the, the subject matter? To make yeah, it I, I, think, I think everything I use in the presentation are, are probably demonstrations that I've, I've created myself. But, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, they're, they're all basic demonstrations mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. previous vision scientists have sort of That's shown it. first yeah. in other ways. I was yeah. just trying to make them a little bit more relevant for that audience. I've just realized, though, because all of these demonstrations, being a visual perception researcher, these mm-hmm. are all visual demonstrations <laughs> of visual illusions. Yeah. I'm not sure if they translate well. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that basic demonstration, so to demonstrate the limitation of peripheral vision, people can do this exercise listening to this right now. Um, if you sort of just turn over, look over your shoulder, look out a window or something mm. and pick one thing to look at. Mm. And if you keep your eyes really still, depending on where you are, um, without moving your eyes, your goal is to try to identify me- as many of the details in your peripheral vision as possible. Now, particularly in cases when there are shop signs or people walking around, you'll probably get the sense that there are people or you'll get the sense that there are, there, there are signs or something, but you will not be able to see any of that detail, right? Mm. So you might see that there's definitely a shop sign over there, mm. but unless you move your eyes over and look at that thing, you just won't be able to recognize what that sign says or you know mm. what that face is. And, and this is the reason that we don't recognize that we, we have such a limited peripheral vision because we're constantly moving mm. our eyes around. Mm. So one branch of my research is trying to understand, well, when we move our eyes, how does that affect our perception and peripheral vision? Mm. Mm. And one of the cool things is that, you know, the obvious thing is, well, when you move your eyes, you, you change what's on your retina. Mm. But my research is specifically aimed at understanding around the time 
in, in milliseconds, literally milliseconds, around the milliseconds before the eyes begin to move. So this is when you're, you've decided that you're going to move your eyes and there's a lot of neural activity. So all the brain areas that are responsible for moving your eyes, all these neurons are starting to fire. They're starting to ramp up the activity that makes your eyes actually move from one place to the other. And this neural activity seems to influence visual activity in your brain and it changes the way that we're processing the outside world. So even before you move your eyes, even before you get that really obvious change of image on your retina, there are changes in your brain that ultimately change what you're perceiving even before your eyes move. Oh, it, 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 it's amazing stuff uh, you speak about and I love the way you speak about it with such passion I mean this is clearly an area you find quite um, you know uh, passionate and motivating and, and uh, you can see the real world implications it could have on if, if it's one in every eight you say uh, mm. perhaps uh, over 60 this could have a you know a big influence on, on how they see the world quite yep. literally now for, for those of you who perhaps couldn't make the seminar talk are there perhaps a couple of key take-home points that you were discussing in that seminar talk that you'd like to make a point of now on the podcast? Sure. So I think, I think the biggest thing, I guess, you know, I think a lot of people who study psychology might take this for granted, but um, what we perceive, what we experience as our visual reality, it's, it's almost a complete illusion. So... Our brain, our visual system, and, and many different parts of the brain are working together uh, to create an impression of a highly detailed visual world. And because of these things, like I've been talking about, like our foveal vision, which is the only part of the vision that's high resolution, at any one point in time, we do not see the world in high resolution. Mm. So only a tiny bit of the world is in high resolution. Mm. And it's only because we're constantly moving our eyes around and we're constantly shifting our central vision to see different parts of the world in high resolution do we see a complete impression of, of the world. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great mystery of visual neuroscience is we just don't know how the brain is doing that. Mm. Okay? So that's, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm working on, which is largely a question. Okay? So how, do we, how does the brain construct this visual reality across these, these many eye movements? And I think... You know, if you ask people how often are you moving your eyes, they they'll say, oh, you know, every every couple of seconds I'm making an eye movement. No, about three or four times every single second mm. you're making an eye movement. Mm. And if you add up the amount of time that it takes you to move your eyes, um, and bearing in mind you're blind when your eyes are moving. Okay, so when your eyes jump from one place to oh, another, yes, yes, you don't see what's in between, or else everything would be blurry and smeared across your retina. If you add up all the times that we're doing this in each second, it ends up being about thirty percent of the time that you're awake, you're blind to the outside of the world, oh. and that's excluding blinks, right? So that's if we pretend that your eyes are wide open and like a clockwork orange the entire time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just because of all these eye movements, you're you're losing about thirty percent of all your vision, and of course you don't notice that, right? We mm. we experience this beautiful mm. continuous uh, representation. So that's I guess that's the convoluted form of, of the one of the first research themes. Um, yeah. Now. Related to this uh, are two other areas of research. So I've already mentioned how peripheral vision is, is low resolution compared to, to central vision. Um, and so there's a particular phenomenon that I study, and it's called visual crowding. Okay. Mm. So if you have a simple object, we commonly use letters in the lab. So um, if you just show somebody a letter in peripheral vision and try to get them to identify it, people are really good at identifying even very small letters if they're far off in peripheral vision. 
But as soon as you put a distractor, a different letter, so let's say you've got a target letter and then there's a, you know, a distracting letter. If you put a distracting letter next to the target letter, all of a sudden the person cannot identify either of these letters. Mm. Okay. So we know that this is a problem, uh, a, a bottleneck in the brain and not the eye, because if there's a single letter, your eye is good enough to resolve that individual letter. Yes. When we add the second letter, your eye is still good enough. There's nothing that's changed with your eye. Yes. But because you, we know perceptually you lose the ability to see that letter, uh, we know there must be a, a problem with the brain. And so another part of my research is trying to understand, well, what are these neural bottlenecks? And one of my sort of more recent contributions, I guess, to this field is that mm. if we just think of all the millions of neurons that are in the brain, mm. uh, in the in visual cortex alone, we don't even have to think about the whole brain. So the visual cortex is at the back of your head. So light goes into your eye and it travels down your optic nerve and goes through a couple of other processing units, but essentially it ends up at the back of your head <laughs> yeah. where, where you've got literally millions of neurons that are trying to process this incoming uh, signal. But each of those neurons you know, it'd be, it'd be really nice if we could just look inside the brain and see, okay, there's a neuron that recognizes faces, there's a neuron that recognizes houses, um. there's a neuron that recognizes whatever. Mm. That's not what happens in visual cortex. Instead, they all respond to just really simple bars of light and dark. And these bars of light and dark, they can be all different orientations and all different sizes. And our best understanding of the brain is what, what all these millions of neurons are doing, rather than each neuron representing a different object that, mm. that are re that's relevant to our behavior, the information across all millions of neurons, it adds up to something like a face. Mm. And so if you consider the population of activity that's encoding something like a simple letter, then from very small individual elements, you can recreate something like a, a letter or a face. And so because we're, we're, we seem to understand the brain in terms of these populations of millions of neurons, if you just have influences in these populations of neurons that change the way that this neural code works, then the population is going to give you the wrong answer. Mm. So going back to peripheral vision, if you've got the letter A in peripheral vision by itself, this population of neurons is good enough to tell you that there's a letter A. But when you put a distracting letter next to it, that seems to be skewing this population of neurons activity so it ends up giving you systematically incorrect answers oh, so if we think of what the brain what the neural bottlenecks are in terms of the millions of neurons that we have for processing the visual world it can sort of shed light on on these kinds of neural bottlenecks i mean you again had a terrific uh demonstration of that in the in, in your seminar presentation and you're right this audio <laughs> podcast doesn't lend itself sometimes <laughs> nicely to understanding some of these visual processes you speak about i think what might be nice when we have when we release the podcast is to include perhaps a couple of links to i know at least your website sure. um but also to a couple of papers or or things that you think could be really useful in terms of uh including a visual image to uh so people could perhaps uh, put a better picture, as it were, yep. to, to some of these uh, uh, visual crowding and also um, other things you're talking about. I'm sure there's some interpretive dance things <laughs> as well. That, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. interesting. That's right. So I think you mentioned some of the, at least two key things there from your seminar. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you, you did have a, a, a third element there, though, in the seminar. Uh, do you want to speak? It's a very good memory. I mean, <laughs> it was actually all about memory, <laughs> the third element. Um, oh, was it? <laughs> Well, funny that you forget it because it's actually short-term memory. <laughs> so this works nicely. Um, so, you know, we, we have different kinds of um, 
neural mechanisms, different kinds of cognitive mechanisms um, that, that store information over different periods of time. So if I said to you, James, mm-hmm. what did you have for breakfast this morning? Mm-hmm. Wheat bakes. Nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Solid. Um, you can remember that. Okay. Yep. But that is very different from me asking you what a name as much from your shelf right behind you that you can remember. Oh, okay. Do you want me to do that now? Well, you, no, no, because you might actually remember quite a lot. But again, the people people listening can can do this demonstration. So if you look somewhere where you haven't been looking for the last few minutes, just turn over, you know, look over your shoulder or something, but just for a second and then, you know, close your eyes and then try to think about how much detail from what you just looked at you can remember. Mm-hmm. And if you're in an unfamiliar setting, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you're if you've just looked at something that you're not really familiar with, mm-hmm. All the research tells us, and this you know, you can do research in the real world, people will only remember a few things, literally three or four things that they just looked at. Mm-hmm. Okay? And these are things that we're trying to store in what we call short-term memory. So this is a, a buffer that we have where we can hold some bits of information for literally just a few seconds of time. Mm-hmm. So in contrast to what you had for breakfast, which you've stored in long-term <laughs> memory, um, Short-term memory literally just lets us remember, okay, when we look over there, we can remember a few things that might be important to us. Then when we look over there, we can remember a couple of other things, but we're going to forget the first couple of things that we looked at. So it's this really limited resource that we have. You can only put so many bits of information into this this short-term memory buffer. Um, And there's, you know, one one of the questions that cognitive neuroscientists are always interested in, well, what are the parts of the brain that are responsible for, for limiting um, short-term memory. As we all know, short-term memory declines with age, for example, um, and very often if people have a stroke or any kind of head injury, mm. short-term memory is very often uh, impaired. Mm. So it's, it's another really important thing that we're trying to understand the basic mechanisms of, hopefully so we can help uh, develop rehabilitation techniques. So in my research, I basically combined some uh, visual perception um, tools uh, with short-term memory experiments to try to understand what are the neural bottlenecks for short-term memory. Uh, And what we found is that the parts of the brain that are responsible for certain perceptual phenomena, like crowding, this limitation of peripheral vision Mm. that I mentioned, um, they seem to be dissociated from the neural mechanisms that are involved in short-term memory. So we can understand very well how something visual works, like visual crowding, and then we can say, well, do those same principles apply to visual short-term memory? And the answer seems to be no. Mm. Um, if you trust our, our one paper, and of course, <laughs> you should always take any paper with a grain of salt. So we need to do more research on this, but uh, certainly this, this research that I you know, have recently published, it certainly sits well with, with a classical literature on short-term memory that um, there, there are these huge networks involving frontal parts of the brain and parietal parts of the brain that are all involved in, in short-term memory. So I think what I would suggest is that maybe visual parts of the brain, visual cortex that are really involved in perception, yes. they seem to be different from what we're holding in memory, the perceptual information that we're holding in memory, even for a few seconds of time. Mm. So there's a very fast trade-off between visual perception neural areas and short-term memory neural areas. On, on a couple of those the points you were just making, I, I just had a couple of you know thoughts that that, that, that popped up for me. Yeah. Um, the first one is you know we're often talking about the visual perception of what you see in the external world. Um, you know, clinically uh, in, in practice, we'll often get clients to to imagine or use imagery, as it were. 
when you create images in the mind, are the same processes at work as what we'd be using to see the external world? So if you had damage to um, some of the, the, the parts of the, the visual perception areas that you've been talking about, would you struggle creating an internal image of that as well? I think that's a fantastic question. I'm sure somebody has, has done that, and I'm not sure the, ex- the answer to that exact question. But what I can say is if you use certain kinds of um, neuroimaging techniques to, to record what's happening in visual cortex, mm. uh, when you show somebody, for example, letters or words, mm. you can then start to build a model that will predict based on what neural activity you see, what the letter or what the word the person was um, seeing or reading at the time. Those same models that are based purely on neural activity, if you put somebody in a brain scanner or use um, EEG, for example, um, they will also predict the word or the letter that the person is thinking about, that that, that they're imagining. So there certainly is some crossover to some extent. And I... Like I said, I'm sure somebody has done this and and I wish I knew about it, but my guess is that, yes, if you uh, impair visual cortex, it could absolutely impair things like mental imagery. Um, Okay, that's incredible. The the next question I had then um, was in regards to some of these practical applications to help with rehabilitation that you were mentioning. Um, Do you see some of your research being used in ways that might lead to um, how we might medically intervene Mm. Or alternatively, how it might be used, say, by things like um, Google Glasses or something like that to help perhaps feed in those spots that couldn't otherwise be seen? Or is that just not possible because of this particular light rays that they can't? pick up on yeah. if I've got that completely wrong. No, no, I think, I, no, I think it's, it's a very sensible question. And I think, I hope the answer is that I, I want my research to inform both of those things. Okay. So for me personally, I think my most direct motivation is to understand fundamental processes in the hope that we can develop rehabilitation techniques for, mm. for clinical purposes. Mm. But at the same time, um, I think they do inform our understanding of computer vision. So, you know, how can we, for example, make computers see more like humans? Now, I said this to my brother who works in IT, and he, he said, why would you want a computer to, to see like humans? Humans have terrible vision. You want to cripple a computer that can you know, ideally do things really well. And, and well, the answer to, to that, to my, my brother, was that, well, well, it depends what we're trying to do. If we're trying to use computers to, to, to create a model of the brain, then we need to limit the computers in the same way that, that we limit humans. And so understanding these basic fundamental processes, we can build that into computers and then that will sort of mm. have this hopefully reciprocal benefit where we learn more about the brain and then we can update the, the models and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of the clinical work, I, I want to be you know careful about this because... I don't think that any any clinician can just pick up my kind of um, experiments right now and apply them to, to patients. I think mm-hmm. anything like that would sort of be a few years off before we even felt comfortable comfortable to, to try to test out humans. Sure, and, sure. Um, sorry, clinical um, groups in, in my kinds of paradigms. Having said that, you know, hopefully, hopefully this information will be helpful at some level um, mm-hmm. down the track. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in finishing up... Will, um, this is just something we're putting to, to everyone, um, and uh, I don't know how you're going to be able to do this, but I suspect you'll come up with something creative and inventive. Um, but what would be the best movie that might capture or reflect the research that you do? So I, I, I 
<laughs> thought a lot about this. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a huge cinephile. So oh, I, right. I absolutely love cinema. And before I studied psychology, I actually did a degree in film and TV and media Oh, studies. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's always frustrating when somebody says, what's your favorite movie? Because you can't think of anything, right? Yeah, like, yeah, your mind yeah. just goes completely blank. Yeah. Um, but one of my favorite films, <laughs> and I'll try, you know, maybe I'm just making this, this metaphor work, but one of my favorite <laughs> films I think kind of encapsulates sort of my pursuit for, for what I'm trying to do in my research. And I think generally maybe what psychologists are doing um, is, is it really is one of the best films of all time. It's The Exorcist. <laughs> Okay, talk me through now, <laughs> for, for, how you got there. For those, I mean, everybody probably has some awareness of the, the Exorcist, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think even young people these days, they get an idea through popular media. It's referenced mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Everybody needs to go back and watch that film. It is absolutely fantastic. And even people who have seen it before, mm. go back and watch it again and think of this. So the first half especially of the film, the second half is very climactic and a lot of interesting things happen. But the first half of the film is, is a beautiful struggle of different personalities trying to understand what's happening in the head of somebody else, okay? So there's a little girl named Regan and she is going through something quite weird and her mum thinks that one thing is happening in her head and our priest thinks that there's just a psychological issue. So the mum thinks there's something really, you know, demonic happening in, in my daughter's head and she enlists the, the help of a priest and the priest has sort of lost faith and he says, all of these kinds of phenomena you can just explain with science, go see, go see a doctor. And so I kind of like this idea that what I'm trying to do is always understand what's going on in people's heads and you can kind of romanticize this. You can think, well, there's something really mystical going on that we'll never fully understand, mm. right? There's this... There's this thing that comes out of the ether that's, you know, not, not attached to any physical form. This is the idea of dualism in philosophy. Um, and, you know, you can take that approach. And I think it, in one sense it does sort of help us to understand this idea of consciousness or visual experience because, you know, in some sense it's, it, it feels a little bit out of the scientific grasp yet to be able to explain something as, as rich as visual experience. But on the other hand, um, we can take a completely scientific approach to, to the problem of, of what somebody is going through and what, what is happening in their head yes. that might be causing them to experience a certain thing or, or, or act, a, act a certain way. Um, <laughs> aside from that sort of tangential <laughs> link, link, though, um, there's not much else in The Exorcist that I can, I can say is really uh, you know, heavily related to my research. But it is a great film. And, it, and, and I, I showed this to a class um, of students years ago because... Um, there's an amazing scene in it when the the psychiatrists are trying to understand what's happening to this girl and they they put i can't remember it must be it's either a i think it might be a pet scan i can't remember what it is but they show how scary this machinery was back in the 60s and they've improved a little bit but they they, you know strap the girl's head down and there's all this loud stuff that's happening all around her Um, and so i think it's also a nice sort of historical window into the way that we used to try to understand different psychiatric disorders and understand how the and process of information oh fantastic well i will be putting that on my to view list and, and in fact if um jason tangan's out there listening jason that might be a good video for us to put into our, um, our film series here within the school of psychology but well it's just been delightful uh, having you on uh, this podcast just the thought and, and taking us through the labyrinth of visual perception and uh the really quite uh intense but important work you're doing around 
understanding how we make uh, sense of what we see in the world around us. Thank you very much. Beauty.